This is a legacy episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast, originally released as part of the Lesbian Talk Show podcast group. Some references may be obsolete. The show looks at lesbian-relevant themes in history and literature, has interviews and discussions about current historical fiction with queer female characters, including fantastic versions of the past, and presents new original historical fiction for your enjoyment. Today, the Lesbian Historic Motif Project is delighted to have Ellen Clavis as a guest. Ellen's fiction has included multiple finalists for the Nebula, Hugo, and World Fantasy Awards and has had wins in the Nebula and World Fantasy. Welcome to the show, Ellen. Thank you. So one of the reasons I hope to get you on the podcast is to talk about your novella, Passing Strange, which is something of a love letter to mid-20th century lesbian culture in San Francisco, as well as being steeped in the geeky world of pulp sci-fi, but with something of a magical twist. It also has an incredibly gorgeous cover. What inspired you to write Passing Strange? I started writing what eventually became Passing Strange in 1977, so 40 years ago. I was just out of college, I had just moved to San Francisco, and I fell completely in love with the city. Uh, I started looking into its history, uh, and I discovered the sort of nascent gay bar scene um, which was Mona's, uh, which was, I think, the first lesbian bar on the West Coast. Fortunately, my past self actually saved the files, and I'd written, I'd written four scenes of a story whose working title was The 39 Fair, and every time they were typed, and when I got a computer, I entered them into a file, and every time I got a new computer, I would switch it over and switch it over and switch it over. So for 40 years, this story has been following me around with these four unrelated scenes and these two characters of Emily Netterfield and Loretta Haskell. And that was kind of all I had, but I would find it every once in a while when I was getting a new computer and I would, I would go through files and I would go, you know, one of these days I'm actually gonna, gonna write that story. And then Jonathan Strand emailed me and said, I'm an acquiring editor for Tor.com. They're doing a novella line. Would you like to write a novella? And I thought, sure, don't know what, wait. I could write the San Francisco story. And so I pulled out these 40-year-old files and did a whole lot more research and fell in love with it again. And I think I saw somewhere you have a short story with the same character who does the the map folding magic, which we'll have to explain in a second. There is there's a character named Franny Franny whose last name is actually Travers, but you don't know that in any of the stories. And yeah, there's a story called Caligo Lane that came out on Subterranean Online in 2014 that is a sequel to Passing Strange, even though I hadn't written Passing Strange yet, that explains in great detail just exactly how Franny's magic works. So uh, and because what... it came out first in the novella, I don't explain how Franny's magic works because I already did that. There's six characters in the novella. Three of them are from other stories. Three of them are brand new. So uh, why don't we give a a little um, synopsis of the story? It takes place in 1940 in San Francisco. There are six characters. They're all women, which people have remarked upon as if it's extraordinary, which I suppose it kind of is, but... Well, it it won't be extraordinary to my audience. (laughs) If it had been military SF and it was all guys, nobody would have blinked, but... Uh, it's it's six women. Uh, there's Franny and Babs, who are a couple. 
Franny is something along the lines of a witch, and Babs is a math professor at the University of California. There's Emily Netterfield, who is the black sheep of a a fairly wealthy family on the East Coast, who is working as a nightclub singer uh, in drag. Uh, There's Loretta Haskell, who is an artist who draws covers for Weird Tales, or the the Weird Tales equivalent, uh, draws covers for the Pulps. There's Helen Young, who is an Asian-American, although at that time she was just an Oriental, who is a lawyer, and in order, because she can't get any jobs as a lawyer because she's Asian and she's a woman, dances in a nightclub called Forbidden City. And then there's Polly Wardlow, who is a British refugee, because it's 1940, so... There's a war in the rest of the world, but not in the U.S. And Polly actually also appears in a story called Hey Presto that came out in, uh, it's in a couple of years best from 2014. But that's Polly's origin story. <laughs> so those are my main characters. And the one of, one of the magical elements in the story is this map folding magic that enables people to uh, essentially teleport. It, it's, it's sort of a, in passing, this thing just happened. It lets them teleport, but only within the city, because it doesn't work. Franny hasn't figured out how to make it work farther than about a mile. So what she does is she she draws maps, and then she folds them into origami. And imagine taking a map of the U.S., and if you folded it one way, New York would be on top of San Francisco, and you could just walk from one city mm-hmm. to the other. And in essence, that's how Franny's magic works, although it's... A lot more complex than that is, and involves, yeah, it's and, more and, complex. And then another element, magical element in the story is uh, the artwork, which... And, well, Haskell has, from the beginning of the story, and I'm just going to do an aside here, that I've had a lot of people complain that there's magic at the beginning and there's magic at the end, and it seems tacked on. And my view of magic is that if you actually had magic, it would be like that platter that you keep in the cupboard over the stove that you only get down at Thanksgiving or Christmas Eve. You know, you it's not everyday China. You don't use it every day. So it's, it's special. So they don't talk about it through the entire mm-hmm. novella, although people that are expecting high fantasy are disappointed by the fact that it's mainstream in the middle. It's a mashup story. It is, it is about the pulps. It is noir. It is historical. Uh, it is queer. It is fantastic. It is magic realism. But it isn't all of those at the same time. Mm -hmm. So the other element of magic is that Haskell's grandmother comes from, we will call it the old country, and has given Haskell a necklace as a high school graduation present. And Haskell's necklace actually appears in every single chapter. And at the end, you find out that Haskell's necklace is more than a necklace. (laughs) And that it will, because she's an artist, it becomes pigment that becomes a painting that gets them out of a gnarly mm-hmm. situation. And I don't want to say any more than that because yeah. that would be a spoiler. But there are several different kinds of magic. I want to talk about the the historical aspects of the story. And I know that a lot of what you write is historical in some fashion. You have a, a wonderful set of 
uh, I don't know if they're YA or middle grade, um, the, the Green Glass C. They're nine and up, and up mm-hmm. that I know of is 96. So, yeah. <laughs> they were, they're, um, they're published as children. That, that are books. set in, uh, around a, uh, a young girl whose parents are working on the Manhattan Project during World War II. Yes. And she actually shows up in Passing Strange. Oh. She does a cameo, and Babs, Franny's lover, is her aunt. So somebody pointed out to me after the fact something that I hadn't quite put together, which is that this now means that Green Glass Sea, which is a completely mainstream historical fiction, uh, now exists in a world where magic is real. (laughs) So these things are all interconnected. But but yeah, I love I love the past. A lot of people think that science fiction is always set in the future or on another planet. And for me, the future, I have no interest in the future because I don't know what it's going to be. It's it's many forking paths. It could be anything. And I'm not particularly interested in speculating on one of the ways it could be, but I love going back and looking at the past and looking looking at what we know about the past and then trying to look around the corner at the stuff that didn't get talked about or didn't get written down or that was taken for granted at the time or that we now take for granted and trying to bring the readers who live in the present face to face with the realities of the past in a way that doesn't feel like it's really educational. Yeah. Is there anything other than a general love of history that got you started writing historical stories? I just love the past. I mean, I've always, ever since I was a kid, I would go to used bookstores and I would be drawn to the books, not the new books, but, you know, the older books. Flea markets, garage sales. I am drawn to things that existed before I was born. Mm-hmm. And they just, you know, there's something, there is something right about the colors of an old magazine or an old Viewmaster reel or even old maps. And so since I was old enough to have an allowance, I have collected old stuff and everything from the past has a story. And I'm fascinated by the stories that didn't get told. Uh-huh. So I know that you've been very involved in lesbian culture yourself, but uh, was there any particular challenge in writing lesbian characters in a historical era that uh, you weren't around for? Yeah, 1940 is, is way before I was born. Most of the challenge, well, there's two challenges. One of them is not making their lives be extraordinary because they aren't. They're living ordinary lives, but in in a period in which their ordinary lives were illegal, mm-hmm. uh, literally illegal. They, it, it was against the law to be gay. And trying to get that across to modern day readers, especially younger modern day readers who grew up in an era that is post that, or at least in at least in San Francisco, which is where I live. And the other challenge is trying to make the past come alive so that you feel like you're getting the backstage tour. Like you're you're not reading about history, you're actually slipping through a little bit of time travel and going back there and walking the streets and seeing what used to be there and what would have been. And in the, a big part of the book is, uh, there's three settings. There's Mona's, which was uh, a lesbian nightclub that was primarily for tourists, which is why the police let it go. But it was also the only place in town where gay women could hang out and be themselves. And then there is the Chinese nightclub, the Forbidden City, where most of the performers were not 
actually Chinese. They were Japanese. They were Korean. They were Filipino. They were some. One of them was Spanish. And then there's the World's Fair. And a lot of people don't know that San Francisco had a World's Fair in 1939. They know about the New York World's Fair. San Francisco actually built Treasure Island to have a World's Fair in 39 and 40 to celebrate the opening of the Golden Gate Bridge and the Bay Bridge. Mm -hmm. And then they were going to turn it into San Francisco International Airport. Ah. And then a war happened and the Navy took it over. And so Treasure Island is still out there, but there's no trace of the fair. And I have always found that particular fair just to be like the most romantic thing I and I some can some of the buildings were still no, there. No, there's nothing. Oh. There's one. There's one hangar, and there's a part of one fountain. Okay. And there used to be a Treasure Island Museum, but it's they didn't have any funding, and so it's everything is boxed up in oh. in a warehouse someplace. But I have always, since I moved to San Francisco, found the idea that this really uninteresting island that's two miles out in the bay, that the Bay Bridge goes through, that you you pass through had this fantasy land in it. And one of the things that I wanted to do was work as many fantasy elements and some science fiction elements into a mainstream story. Uh So there really was, it really was called the Magic City. Treasure Island was, the fair was. And it was full of things that look like they came out of something Arthur Rackham would have illustrated or the cover of a science fiction pulp. Uh-huh. Um, you know, these buildings that would never exist in real life and larger than life stuff. And so I wanted to try to bring that to life, mostly for myself, because, boy, I really have always wanted to go there. And of course, it was gone 15 years before I was born. But also so the readers could go to this magical place that no longer exists. Yeah, on the theme of you know time travel, as it were, I think you said this was your first story that was published, Time Gypsy. Time Gypsy, yeah. Which has an actual overt time travel element and, again, is connecting the modern lesbian experience with the 50s. Yeah, that one's set in 57, and it was my first story, and it got nominated for a Nebula and a Hugo, so apparently I knew what I was doing. Yeah. And again, the science fiction element is very slight. I have I have enough time travel. I mean, I read Stephen Hawking, figured out a way that there could possibly be And as I travel. understand it, the it's a, a modern physicist, I think? Yeah, it's, who, a, it's who, a PhD in, in, in physics. Who at travels Cal. back in time to, to meet her, her hero or something. And why don't you give a brief synopsis? It's, it, it's a woman named Carol McCullough who has a PhD in the history of science. And she's called into the dean's office and said, you know about this crackpot scientist from the 50s, Sarah Baxter Clark. And she's like, yeah, I did my PhD thesis on her. And, and she's worried that she's going to like <laughs> lose her job because crackpot physicist. And he basically says, well, she was right, there is time travel. We figured out most of what she was doing, but her last paper was lost when she died in this tragic accident the day before she was supposed to present this paper. We figured out enough that we can get you back there, but we can only do it once because the energy requirement is, and we think her paper is can solve that. So we want you to go back, make friends with her, get the paper, and bring it back to us. Uh-huh. So she goes back, meets Sarah Baxter Clark. They fall in love because it turns out that Sarah Baxter Clark was gay and had a beard as a boyfriend. Then they decide not to send the paper back, and it it gets very convoluted as they plan the accident that everybody knows is what killed her, Ah. but it doesn't. (laughs) And 
and it is it is yeah it was it was so much fun to write and it was my first story so it's really exciting and it does harken back to a lot of the themes of of passing strange of really it was not okay to get caught being gay in the 40s or the 50s or the 60s or depending on where you live the 70s 80s or 90s uh-huh. Yeah, so I know that a lot of your books recently have been more aimed at the YA audience. Have you ever done queer characters for YA, or is there two streams not really meeting? I've got two novels that came out 10 years ago that are middle grade, and I just finished one. Some of the characters overlap, so (laughs) if you want to find gay themes in the middle grade books, they're there. If you don't, they don't jump out at you. Okay. Um, the only novels I have ever written are, are middle grade novels for kids. They're also historical fiction. Other than time, well, there's there's usually women characters in, okay, there's women characters in all of my mm-hmm. short fiction. There are a lot of gay characters, but I don't make a big deal about it because I don't feel that's my job. It's like, there are two women, they're lovers, and this is what happens. Uh-huh. So Passing Strange was the first time since Time Gypsy that I think I've written a long piece that was overtly uh-huh. overtly queer. And it's not, I mean, eventually some grad student is going to put everything I've written together and, and find themes, and that will amuse me. But they're not separate I don't write under a different name. They're just sort of out in the suburbs versus the the stories that take place in the city. Uh-huh. So would you like to let our listeners know where they could find information about your books online? Or do you have social media they could follow if they want? Um, if, you, if you're on Twitter, I am E. Clagis or at, at E. Clagis. On Facebook, I think I'm just Ellen Clagis. Passing Strange it came out from Tor.com in January of... 2017. You know, this is December. Uh Uh, It's the end of the year and a lot of very, very good things have come out this year. But you can go to Tor.com, your local, any bookstore that carries uh, a decent collection of science fiction and fantasy would either have it or be able to order it. You can go to, you know, the usual online places. And if you want a signed copy, contact Borderlands Books in San Francisco because they're 10 minutes from my house and they will call me and I will drive down and sign copies and then they will mail them (laughs) off to you. Yeah, I'll put all these details in the show notes to make it easy for people. So thank you so much for sharing your time with us here at the Lesbian Historic Motif Project. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif Podcast. See the show notes for links to people and topics. Most shows will have a transcript linked as well. If you have a book announcement, a topic suggestion, or might like to appear on the show, please drop me an email. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it and subscribe on your favorite podcast app, and consider supporting our Patreon 